All right. Hello and welcome to the Construction Partner Podcast. Guys, like I promised, it won't just be me this week. We have a special guest and I'm excited to bring on uh, Matt Vetter, who's an entrepreneurial-minded business leader and an expert in pre-construction services. Uh, pre-construction is going to be something that we'll really dive in here because it's, it's one of the big topics, I think, across the industry right now. Matt is currently serving as vice president and a partner in Schaefer Construction, and Schaefer is a growing design build uh, GC in Brighton, Michigan, which is about 30 minutes north of Ann Arbor, which is my wife's alma mater, uh, the good old Go Blue. So Matt's career spans all aspects of residential, commercial, and for more than two decades, he's worked in various roles, self-employed, lone wolf consultant, um, to a department director of a large construction firm, and now as an owner and partner in charge of all facets of the business. Uh, Matt's an avid hunter and fisherman and tends to spend as much time as possible outdoors, which is why I think construction is a great fit uh, with his wife, three kids, and family dogs, which you can probably hear mine in the background. So Matt, welcome to the show. Dylan, thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Now I know we've, even in your bio, kind of spanned a little bit of everything, but what initially got you into construction? So initially, if, I, if I'm going to be perfectly honest, it was money. Um, I started off kind of as a, you know, hump and lumber type laborer uh, for a residential squad in Michigan here when I was uh, my last couple years of high school. Um, you know, at the time it was, I got to be outside. I made a lot of money. It was, it was typically under the table. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, intrinsic value that I, I saw in the industry at that time. It was, it was just kind of a, a fun thing to do with my buddies. Um, obviously it kind of transformed from that point on, but, but yeah, I mean, to be perfectly honest, it was, it was the paycheck uh, at the end of the day. <laughs> I think, uh, a lot of the guests I've had on, that's probably their initial thing, you know, whether it was in the, the family business where they got dragged in or uh, just for a paycheck and um, kind of stayed with it. And I guess really that leads me to why did you stay with construction uh, for so long? Yeah, and, um, you know, it wasn't a family business. My, my father was in finance. My mom uh, stayed at home with my, my brothers and I. So, um I got my first taste of it. Like I mentioned in residential, we would, you know, we built custom homes and I just, I fell in love with it. You know, I loved creating. I loved, uh, you know, the look on people's faces when you hand them over the keys to their, their finished product. Um, and it, it quickly became a, a means to, to really support myself. Uh, I ended up putting myself through college, um, through U of M, uh, with my, my construction job. So, uh, it, it just, it, it fit really well. Um, and then, you know, since then it's kind of transformed in, in a myriad of ways, but, uh, you know, we, I made the leap to, to the commercial side in, uh, early 2000s, mid 2000, mid 2005-ish and really haven't looked back since then. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty big leap. I guess if you're doing big, uh, high-end residential to commercial, it's not maybe as big a leap. Um, but what we're kind of in making that leap, 
what were some of the, the big challenges that you had to overcome or how you approached projects that, that might differ from, from residential to kind of the commercial world? It, it was a huge leap and it was, it was really out of necessity. Um, you know, as everything was kind of crumbling with the, the nation's economy, you know, we were doing a lot of work for, uh, for big three auto executives in the area and their money kind of started drying up. It seems at the time anyways, before everybody else. So, you know, there was kind of writing on the wall of, uh, you know, impending doom to the industry. Um, I had an opportunity through a, a mutual connection to, to make that leap into commercial. And, you know, sometimes you got to fake it till you make it. And I'll, I'll stand behind that to, to anybody who wants to argue it, but that, you know, I had the background, obviously I had a decade or so of, of, you know, good solid residential construction experience. Um, it's a far cry from, from the commercial world. So there was a lot of bumps and bruises that I took right out of the gates and, you know, and, and along the way in, in the next you know, decade of, of kind of quote unquote learning as I, as I ran with it. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially on the residential side and how, I mean, in, this is commercial to an extent too, where an area can be so dependent on like for, obviously Michigan, a lot of that economy, and especially in that um, southeastern Michigan is dependent on, you know, the big three car companies um, and how that can quickly transition a, uh, an entire, you know, area and region um, from kind of the, the rise and fall of, of just a few companies. And the same could be said in, in commercial for, you know, whether it's healthcare, higher ed, or um, some of the other big kind of typical builders within a economy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, the, the big three especially drive it here and, you know, it just, it was, it was telling and, and luckily uh, I made the leap when I did because, you know, a lot of the residential guys uh, didn't fare too well through that. So, um, you know, when I first started off in the, the commercial side, uh, I was a, I was a, a track, a road warrior and I was on the road or, or on an airplane um, five or six days a week. So, you know, I was able to kind of talk the economy around the country for a while. To begin with, uh, I got in with, with some folks and was building a lot of uh, quick serve pizza restaurants. Uh, and that, that really was my, my bread and butter for, for almost a decade. Um, it, it cut my teeth on a lot. It put a lot of uh, frequent flyer miles in my account. You know, but it, it also kept me away from my, my wife and, and my growing family. At the time, I, when I started, I had, I had one son. Now I have, have three. So being on the road that much just got, it got too much. Um, it, you know, and, and kind of likewise, we, I transitioned into more of a, you know, heavier commercial, you know, light industrial, um, some retail, uh, you know, aspects of, of, of those markets locally and, and, you know, I've kind of, I've gone to a, a couple of different places, but, but now where I'm at with Schaefer Construction, you know, we, we really are focusing on, on really cool projects is the best way I can explain it. Uh, we, we build everything outside of single family homes. Um, and it's just, uh, it's a great ride. So it, it, it took a lot of learning and it, you know, if I could 
give a residential guy any advice, a residential guy that wants to go commercial, um, it, it's it, you got to learn fast and you got to be willing to fail and, and fail fast and learn from it because you, you will definitely take your bumps and bruises. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. And uh, one thing before we get into what you're <clears throat> kind of currently working on with uh, Shaper is within construction, you know, some of us might think it's, you know, always a regional thing. And kind of as you, you explained, it, it can be a national uh, opportunity for people that are willing to travel. Obviously, travel is not always as glamorous as it uh, might be made out to be at times. <clears throat> Granted, if you're in your probably uh, 20s and probably early 30s, it's not uh, not too bad to be traveling that much, but um, as your, your family grows and other uh, obligations kind of creep in on the home front, traveling that much can, uh, can really wear on a person. But it's great to know that there are opportunities for people if they are willing to travel, you know, especially in construction. Yeah, absolutely. And we have a, a close friend of, of our firm um, who's a, he's a nationwide, nationwide GC uh, based locally to us in Brighton there in, in Michigan. Uh, they don't do any work in Michigan. So uh, we're allowed to be friends with them, but it, it's kind of like you said, you know, the guys in their, their twenties and thirties, they do real well with that, that sort of lifestyle. And, and for obvious reasons, you're, you're in a different place quite often. Um, the guys that maintain that lifestyle, you know, in their forties, fifties and, and, and maybe retire from it are, are pretty few and far between there, you know, there are a few, but uh, it, it just, it, it takes a definite mindset and, and lifestyle to allow that sort of, that sort of travel. You know, you really got to love the, the road warrior mentality. Yeah, I had a boss who, uh, one of my first jobs, really well, internships and then first job out of college, who he hit uh, whatever the highest tier of Delta is, platinum or diamond by typically August every year, which I right. think is like, right. you know, 150 connections or some 200 connections, 200 flights a year. Um, and he typically hit that by like August. So, and he was in his 50s, but usually it was, you know, out Monday back Wednesday, maybe Thursday. Um, so short, short weeks, but still, um, it's pretty impressive when the Delta ticket agent and flight attendants <laughs> know you by name. Yes, definitely. And, and, you know, there, there are perks that come along with that too. You know, I, my wife and I, uh, took a vacation last December and, and that was, we upgraded to first class on the way down to Florida. That was the absolute last bit of, uh, of airline miles I could scrape together from my, my days traveling. So not now when we fly or when you used to fly it, it's like, wow, what do you mean? There's no upgrades. What do you, what do you mean? You won't, you won't just put me up there. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. So with Ken transitioning back to what you're doing with Schaefer and, you know, basically everything, but uh, residential, what are some of the, project types that you, you know, really enjoy maybe a little more than others. Obviously, uh, as we like to say in engineering, every client's our favorite, but we always have a, a project type that we like maybe a little more than others. We, I say we, but me, me personally, um, my favorite is, is true kind of hands in the dirt design build is the way I like to describe it, where, where we as the, as the GC, 
hold all of the strings. We hire the architecture staff, we hire the engineers, um, and we kind of lead the show for our clients. So uh, right now we're, we're right in the midst of, of building a, a pretty large for the area uh, community center. And it's, it's a cool project. It's, it's about 40,000 square feet. There's a, a third of it is gonna be uh, you know, multi-purpose space and, and some admin area, you know, areas for rental. And the rest of it is, is uh, three basketball courts with an elevated walking track around around the tops of them. And that's kind of like our, our prototypical favorite project. You know, we, we met the, the client um, a little over a year ago. They had a, a need and just through some, some discussions, um, I mean, the, there were literally bar napkins or, or, you know, restaurant napkin sketches that, that went around and that, and that's kind of the, the onset, the conceptualization of that project. And when we can, can get involved that early, you know, when, when the concept is really just a, a wish in the eyes of, of the owner of the client, that's when we can provide, you know, really immense value uh, on, from our side and, and, and we get the most enjoyment out of it. So a, anywhere that, you know, we, we, you'll see us on bid day once in a while um, because it's kind of a necessary evil, I think in our industry, there's times when, when we are busier than, you know, and there's times when we are slower. So, we do a little bit of public work, a little bit of, of bid work, but you know, if I could have my, my pick every day, it would be you know, true, true design build where we, we literally start from zero and, and take a project all the way to, to fruition. That's awesome. With kind of the rise of, I think, design build, or maybe even in ways going back to the roots of uh, you know, construction a couple hundred years ago where you really had a, you know, the architect and GC were kind of one and the same. And, um, you know, since then we've had, you know, more specialization as we, we move forward and kind of getting back to design build has been, um, I think there's a lot of positive benefits out of it and there can be some maybe um, pitfalls <laughs> with design build too, in that, you know, maybe contracts aren't, aren't ironed out correctly or things like that. But what, from, from a, your side um, and the GC side, what's some of the, like the big benefits that you see in running design build projects? Um, I think there's a lot, um, you know, but one of the, the absolute biggest and best, I think is the ability to control budgets for our clients. Um, you know, the traditional design bid model, it, it works in certain scenarios, but it, it takes a design team that, that really truly has a, a finger on the pulse of today's construction market. And in our area, at least, those are pretty few and far between. And, you know, too often what ends up happening is, you know, the client finds the, the consultant, they express their wishes, consultant leaves, designs a beautiful building or structure, whatever it may be, it goes out for bid and it's, you know, quite a bit over budget. Uh, and, and all that really leads to is, is frustration. It leads to an expensive set of documents. Um, you know, the way we approach design build really from the, from the very, you know, rawest, purest form is it allows us to, to kind of 
proceed with design and, and to direct our design team along with an accurate, up-to-date budgeting system. Because, you know, we're in the trenches every day. You know, we're, we're signing subcontracts. Our guys are buying materials. We know the fluctuations in the market probably better than most. At least we like to think we do. And, and just by virtue of that, it allows us to really keep a tight grip on things so that at the end of the process, you know, we can go back to our client and say, hey, all right, uh, client X, here, here's the, the building we designed for you. Hopefully they love it. And then at the end of the presentation, you can say, oh, and, and the best part is you can afford it. You know, it's under budget or it's at your budget. Um, I, I think there's, there's lots of other benefits, but if I had to pick one, that would be really the, the, the highest and best. I would totally agree with you there. Um, you know, as an engineer that I was designing, you know, a lot of, big structures, big buildings, big projects, we had, you know, our requirements, right? Especially on the engineering side, you have a lot of baseline stuff that is pretty hard to get rid of. Um, about the only thing right. VE out of electrical typically is the lights. Um, but that's, <laughs> that's about it. Everything else is, you know, if you, you want power, that's about it. Um, obviously mechanical and a lot of the other uh, disciplines, you can um, have different VE items, but by and large, it's, you know, hey, we kind of need this if you'd like air conditioning or heat. Um, <laughs> but for pricing, I think that is really one of the biggest disconnects between uh, any design firm, engineering, architecture, and, uh, you know, an end product. We're, as engineers, we're focused on putting everything together, making sure that it engineers, but we really don't deal with price ever. Um, you know, we're not bidding anything. We're not looking at what anything costs or how long it takes on a daily basis like you guys are, um, or a, any of your subs or anything like that. So I would totally agree in, in budgets and pricing that having that integrated and really walking through that throughout the entire design process is a huge, huge benefit. Um, and that's something that I think we're starting to see more of. Um, in that integration and kind of along those lines, what's some of the maybe tips that you would give to either design firms or um, well, really in design firms and working with, with you or any other uh, general contractor in, you know, having a successful design build project. Um, the biggest piece would be lose the animosity. You know, and I mean that with all due respect to the design world, but there's a lot of, of quote unquote, old school design firms in our area, especially that, you know, to, to those guys, we're, we're still just the, uh, the big dumb contractor, you know, and I think that that world has changed. I know that world is changing. I'm, I'm proof of it. Um, so the, the you know, you, you got to have a willingness to, to form a team and to really truly collaborate on a, on a pretty deep level to make this work. Uh, when that happens, it's, it's truly, you know, it's magical. It's remarkable what, what you can create. Uh, when it doesn't happen, it's, it's a real pain for everybody. So I, I guess that would be, that'd be my, my request and my tip at the same time is, is just be open to, to team up, you know, and, and, and be open to kind of, step outside of the, of the box you may be used to and, and, you know, give it a shot see if, see if this form of, of contracting might, you know, might, might lead to good things. 
Yeah, I'm, I agree with that a lot. The more open you can be uh, on a project, on a job, you know, even if, no matter what the kind of contract structure is, whether it's design, build, plan, spec, whatever, um, you know, the better relationship you can have with your contractors um, and trade partners, the better the project goes. I've been on projects where I got along great with, um, you know, for me being an electrical engineer, um, but the electrical contractor and I've been on jobs where there was no making reason throughout the project and it did not go well for anybody. You know, a lot of little things that could have been handled uh, easily and efficiently were not. Um, so I, I totally agree that if you're willing to share it and, you know, by and large, there's, especially if you're on the same team and under the same contract and you really want the product to be successful, you know, there's no real secret sauce and sharing is just going to make everybody happier <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, yeah, sharing it, ab absolutely. It is. Absolutely. You know, and, and it's not, uh, a lot of guys will look and say, well, you know, these, those are the contractors that, that don't like the architects or, you know, those are the guys that want to, you know, be the boss. And it, it, it's truly not that what we do. And I mean, we have, we have consultants that we work with a lot um, that really understand this model and, and we get along great, you know, and we can bounce ideas off each other and, and we all bring something to the table that the other guy doesn't have. And that's the beauty of it. You know, when it, when it works, uh, that's the beauty of it. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of outside that, and this is, I've seen more and more of it. And I mean, I've been a voice for it too, but within the, the industry, I'm trying to think of how best to phrase this, contracts typically end up getting in the way um, from a lot of things like on a, let's say, just say a plan spec job or design bid build where, you know, there's, the architect and the GC are on basically opposite sides of the table where the, the architect and engineers are, you know, trying to make sure that everything's in the best interest of the owner. And obviously the GC is trying to do the same thing, um, but putting checks on each other and <clears throat> where de design build brings all of that under one so that you're all on the same team checks are kind of internal. Um, and there's, or you would at least think there shouldn't be as much infighting um, amongst the kind of teams for for the project but i think contracts end up being a big kind of sticking point from the you know what what is a deliverable what should a deliverable look like um to you know how you coordinate what needs to be delivered um and particularly in this kind of is leading into you know prefab and pre-construction um on what what gets delivered from the design team to the contractors what the contractors are actually looking for Obviously on a design bid build, that's kind of harder to negotiate since, you know, the architects kind of write their own contracts and then, you know, the uh, build team and the construction team gets kind of whatever the design team puts out. But where do you see contracts kind of heading in the future and really to kind of help the team as a whole? I know that's kind of a big loaded question and a lot of facets in there, but, um, I haven't, I haven't stumbled on a good answer or, you know, come across anybody that has a, a really good answer for, you know, doing this. Obviously, design builds a great uh, avenue to take, but for, 
you know, with a lot of projects being designed bid build out there, um, I think there's got to be something that shifts within the contract structure to kind of help everybody along. Um, so just curious on your thoughts and really kind of leading into pre-con and, and what that looks like moving forward. Yeah, and, and I, I tend to agree with you that the contracts, although I think they are a necessary evil, they, they do tend to, to get in the way. You know, they, they set up a, they almost set up a predisposition of attitudes um, amongst <laughs> yeah. the different parties before you, before you even get started. And I, I don't know that there is a great answer. You know, I, there's this, you know, the I integrated project design movement is, it's got some, some good points. I think, I don't think it's the end all answer. It's kind of a, kind of a blend of the two, I guess, if you will. Um, that's, it's a tough question because it, it's an industry that's acted and operated in, the, in virtually the same way for, uh, my gosh, you know, hundreds of years. And I, I don't know that everyone sees that it's time to change. I think maybe that's, maybe that's part of the problem is, is some people are, or some firms are, are not, are still not wanting to let go and, and, and kind of move on to a different formula, whether it works better or not. Yeah, I'd agree there. I mean, <clears throat> when you look at like a standard AA contract, most all deliverables are still in two-dimensional PDF format, right? In a spec book that's, you know, 3,000 pages long. So <clears throat> that, that, that no one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, nobody reads it. Nobody looks through it. Um, you know, they just look at the drawing sets and skim the spec sections that you know, they kind of know and pick through it. Um, so that's, I think that's going to be the first thing that really has to change is, you know, the model, BIM as a deliverable is going to be that first piece that I think you change that deliverable, a lot of other pieces fall into place. And for everybody to understand what that deliverable looks like, everybody understands, you know, two-dimensional PDFs, not everybody understands three-dimensional, you know, BIM model deliverable. I, I think you, you're really close on that one. Um, you know, a lot of guys, especially here locally, a lot of guys, you say the word BIM and, and they can't even comprehend what you're talking about. You know, they, they just think it's some astronomically expensive, horribly complicated uh, model that you know some of the stuff some of the stuff we're building they just can't see how it could ever possibly help and and granted there are some BIM models that I've seen that are astronomically expensive and, and horribly complicated but I, I think you know the more I'm learning about it I think there's there's some really good options that are kind of in between or or even on the you know the starter end of of the BIM spectrum that that aren't going to crush a budget, that aren't, you know, so complicated that you need a PhD to, to operate them, but, but can really help the project. Um, you know, full disclosure, we, we haven't used one yet. Uh, we're, we're looking at a project coming up here that is kind of our, our sweet spot design build. And, and I, I've started kind of having some talks with a couple folks about, you know, how maybe we could integrate you know, in a, a, a quote unquote affordable kind of easy version of BIM to just to help things through. But you know, I think the person that figures that one out 
and figures out how to make it globally acceptable to, to our industry is, is A, going to be a very rich individual someday, and, and B, I think they, they're going to solve a lot of people's problems. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, in BIM in particular, there's, there's kind of two facets for it. Uh, one is the design team needs to um, really understand what the, that BIM deliverable needs to look like. Um, you know, everything needs to be modeled, whatever level of design they're going to, like an LED, you know, 250 or 300 model. Um, you know, so what, what does that actually mean you know, for, for each of the disciplines, each of the trades, right? There's no uh, faking it, no putting in just lines, like everything actually needs to be modeled, um, I think is a big start to it. And then on the other side, in talking to a lot of uh, subs, I mean, they basically rebuild the design model every time to put in their own stuff. So I think there's a that's part of it where the, the design model is, you know, design intent versus what a, a subcontractor would do. And that, I mean, that goes for everybody from walls and ceilings to electrical to HVAC to plumbing, um, you know, whoever is going to use that model, they basically pull it apart, put it back together um, with their own content. So the, for actual construction, constructability, and for their own prefab shops, so that's, that becomes a big <clears throat> piece is connecting the, the design team to the contractor team and what is actually going to be built. Um, but for like the, the simple things is like a fly through of coordination, right? Like where is the main routing going? Can all the ductwork fit in here? I think those are the, <clears throat> for a starter model, if you will, those are kind of the big core coordination components that that BIM really saves on is, you know, hey, we got a tight space here, or um, we can do all of our coordination prior to putting up a, a wall or anything on site. Absolutely. And I can tell you, uh, just this week, I, I showed up on the site of one of our projects. And, um, you know, one of my one of my guys, one of our superintendents had a, a meeting and it, it was incredibly productive. He had our, our whole MEP squad there. And they were, you know, looking through the 2D PDFs and looking at a wall that's in place and, and doing just what you just mentioned, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how the heck do we squeeze all the ductwork and, and all the conduit runs and all the piping. And uh, it, it's kind of amusing to me, but we, we were left with uh, literally a map made with duct tape on the side of a masonry wall of our project where, I mean, that was, the, that was what they came up with to solve this problem and to see where everyone fits. And while, in that instance, it worked great. You know, I, I applauded my guy for, for getting everyone that organized because it doesn't, doesn't always happen that way. But, you know, to have a, a model or, or, or whatever you want to call it ahead of time that everybody on the whole team gets input in and gets to help, you know, create whether they're, they're actually the ones programming it or, or just, by, you know, just by talking through their, their specific systems, to have that model to kind of show you ahead of time, I think would just be exponentially helpful on, on a lot of projects, if not all of them. Yeah. And I mean, I'm seeing more and more put in place and some efforts are, are led by the GCs on given projects. Some of them are actually led by the subs. Um, and 
you know, it, it helps them save time and effort and energy because they can have a guy, you know, inside coordinating a bunch of projects kind of in parallel, if you will. And then, you know, their, their field guys can go out and execute on it and they're not spending, you don't have uh, kind of like you explained where you got six guys standing around trying to figure out something that can be done um, virtually in a conference room and an hour meeting versus driving to site and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's the, the future of it. And then for everyone to agree on what that initial deliverable looks like are the, the big steps that, that at least I'm seeing um, kind of play out here. Yeah, I, I, I'm hopeful for the day when we, we start seeing, you know, more and more of that. I think it helps the pre-con side. I think it helps the project as a whole and, and it'll really just help the industry because, you know, let's face it, our, our industry is an old one. Um, if we, if we don't start working on, on advancing and, and kind of getting closer to, to with the times, we're going to have some real problems coming up in the, in the next, you know, in the next decade even. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and really as, um, well, like with COVID and the, you can't put as many guys on the job site anymore, you know, where you're going to have to find other ways to, to utilize your, your talent and labor pool, you know, more effectively where, you know, you can't have 10 guys in the same room doing finishes and, um, you know, final touches <laughs> on a project all at the same right. time right. For, for distancing. And that's, that's one thing I wanted to touch on is um, really how how have you been able to to kind of navigate the current uh, situation with COVID and guys on site and be able to continue your projects? So COVID, you know, the whole thing is just a giant monster. Obviously, um, we had to shut down. I personally had to shut down my first project in my entire career. Uh, back in in March was when when Michigan officially kind of closed the doors, and it was terrible, you know, as as everyone has experienced. But you know, to to shut an active project down and walk away and just kind of fingers crossed, hope that that looks the same when you get back, and that you know it, nothing's failed, nothing's leaked, nothing's worse for wear. It was a, it was a horrible feeling, um, you know. And, and luckily on, on that project, we got back and everything was. For the most part fine but you know it's, it's tough because con construction is a, a manual effort right you got to have so many guys out there or, or girls people you got to have so many hands in the dirt you know you can't you can't really cut down that number of how many folks you have on site easily and so you know it's it's a problem right now you know a lot of our projects are still we're still getting buttoned up before the, the big winter storms hit. So we're, we're outside where it's not as crucial. You know, we can have guys, you know, our, you know, Masons, for example, they, they spread apart, you know, a bit as, as far as they can. But, you know, once we get closed up on, on that community center project I mentioned earlier, that, that's a good example. Um, we're going to have a ton of trades, you know, and, and that one runs the gambit from your, your normal slew of, you know, carpenters and painters and floor guys, to all of the specialty stuff that goes along with, with sports floors and, and, you know, basketball equipment and all that. Um, 
you know, we're, we're in meetings, we're in, in talks now of, of trying to strategize how best to do that and to keep people safe, obviously, and, and keep them separate if that's what, what safety looks like from, from now on. But uh, it, it's a tough, tough problem in, in our industry. I think perhaps more than most because, you know, on my side of it, you know, I'm just a, an office guy. I, you know, I can handle it. I can work out of my basement if I need to. I, I proved that to myself and my company for, you know, the, the three or four months we were, we were down, but, you know, for my superintendents or for my masons or for my carpenters, there's only so much you can do with, with a skeleton crew. And, you know, we, we, we haven't figured out that, that equation yet, but it's, it's coming rapidly. Uh, you know, Michigan, especially we're, we're 84 degrees today. We're going to be in the fifties next week. So we could be snowing before too long. Um, which, which changes the whole dynamic out here. And I just, I don't know that there is a great answer. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And I mean, um, it's something that I'm, you know, I don't have to deal with on a, on a daily basis like you guys do. And just hearing <clears throat> what you have to go through, I think for, you know, our listeners, for everybody out there, it's not something, you know, we really necessarily thought of. Um, from the outside guys, like you're saying, that makes, you know, things fairly doable, fairly, you know, manageable. But as you get inside, as crews kind of expand from, um, you know, excavators and ditch witches to, you know, painters and masonry and specialty equipment providers and everybody else um, within that same space, you know, it takes a lot of guys to, to put up a building and you, like you mentioned, when you had to shut down a job site, you can't leave a whole lot in place for too long or it, it might not be how you need it uh, to come back to, right? The, that's the other side of construction is things are fairly fluid and need to continue to move for it to, to stay put um, while they, you know, everything stabilizes and um, gets put in place that, that we might not always think about either. Yeah. I mean, you gotta, you gotta finish baking the cake, you know, before you take it out of the oven. And that's, we, we left a, a cake that was a, a bowl full of batter and, um, you know, we, we haven't thought about it as an industry. How do, how do you do that? And I, like I said, I don't know that you can't, um, you know, going forward on, on new contracts, we have language now, you know, some, some horribly ugly attorney driven language about, you know, COVID specifically or pandemics and epidemics and all the, you know, it takes our normal contract and adds three pages of this horrible worst case scenario crap. But on projects that started before that, you know, if we, if we have a labor force of let's say 20 guys, but now all of a sudden because of, of COVID or whatever regulations, we're told we can only have 10, you know, I, it's a real tough sell for me to go back to a client and say, well, it's going to take twice as long or it's going to be twice as expensive. Now your, your choice. You know, I, it, it puts us as, as GCs, especially in, in kind of the ultimate pickle. So I, I don't know that, you know, hoping it gets better is the best option, but, but uh, <laughs> there's a lot of that going on. Yeah, no. And I mean, it's really, you know, you're doing the best you can with what you have and it's stories like these that I think need to get out there, right. That not everyone understands the little nuances and, you know, complete ramifications across all sorts of industries um, from what's happening. So, 
you know, I think for all of us, we do the best we can. We operate the, the best we can with the, the knowledge and um, pieces that we, that we can, can put in place and implement. Um, definitely not easy, but we've got to, to move forward somehow. And I think you guys are, are doing that uh, really to the best of your ability. And obviously not easy, but, um, you know, we got to get through this somehow and figure out ways to get back to what I hope will be our normal that we experienced, let's call it a year ago. Absolutely. I think everybody's looking forward to that. We, we need to get there soon. <laughs> <laughs> Shifting off of, of kind of the recent um, requirements, and we've kind of touched on technology, but what, do you, what impacts and roles is technology playing for you guys, and where do you kind of see the, the ball moving forward? Um, I think technology is, is taking a, a more present role um, in the industry as a whole, certainly with, with us, with Schaefer Construction, um, you know, even just with myself, you know, every, everything is moving towards the tech, that, the tech that's helpful, right? So whether it's, you know, doing takeoffs with, with PlanSwift, uh, or, you know, we have some different estimating programs that we, we play around with. Um, our field guys all carry iPads loaded up. Uh, we use FieldWire specifically, but it, it's similar to PlanGrid. There's a couple other options. So our guys have, have access now to, you know, a litany of, of information and details uh, literally at their fingertips at any point in time, at any point on one of our job sites. And that's, it's hugely powerful. Um, you know, even as short as 10 years ago, you didn't see that, you know, even maybe five years ago, you didn't see a lot of that. And it's, uh, it's, it's tech like that, that I, I see continuing to, to kind of take over. You know, we, we have a drone guy now we have, you know, flights through our projects for, for inspections and, and for marketing purposes It you know, everything like that is kind of coming together in this, this swirling ball of, of an industry that for a very, very long time, was was globally reluctant to change, reluctant to to grow, quote unquote. Um, I think there's a lot of, for lack of better words, there's a lot of good stuff going on. There's a lot of good tech that that's actually being being utilized uh, on a daily basis that that we're seeing, anyways. Yeah, there's definitely been more and more that have been implemented. I know um, a hospital project that I worked on in particular. Uh, we were redoing 30 operating rooms, and with that, we um, or the architect hired a uh, company to come in and do laser scans and photogrammetry of it to basically recreate all 30 operating rooms. So that you know that company went in, did everything after hours, you know, between like 1 and 4 a.m. to take pictures and scan the whole thing, so that the design team one never had to go into the ORs. And two, we could get in effectively and look at each of the, the rooms, you know, on demand, um, which you'd never be able to do in the past or it'd be hugely inconvenient to, you know, go into these ORs, gown up at, you know, you'd get there at 11 o'clock, get in at 1130, be there for three hours that you were able to, to then, you know, gown out, go back, you know, get home at four in the morning to go back to work at eight. Uh, just isn't feasible and then the you know you hope you took the right pictures and the thing you needed wasn't right, right. frame 
Um, Definitely. And, and that stuff is so cool too. Have you seen, um, I think they call it spot, the little robotic camera dog. I have. Yeah. I, I don't know what they cost, but I would love to get one just to, just to mess with it. Cause I, you know, stuff like that, I think is, is just so neat to see it coming through and, and it coming into our industry and the possibilities are, are literally endless. Yeah. So for everybody that uh, maybe hasn't heard of spot or um, any of the robotics, so it comes out of uh, Boston robotics. They've done like the humanoid dogs and um, that's, which is what spot or the, uh, four-legged kind of dog thing that you've probably seen pictures or videos on the internet where somebody could kick it um, and it would stay upright uh, primarily for like military applications where you'd have basically a pack robot <laughs> to get through like yeah. rough, ter rough terrain. Um, they've also done like the humanoid where guys, uh, robots running on a treadmill, um, stuff like that. So uh, Boston Robotics, I believe is the company, um, but they have, it might be Boston Dynamics, but um, anyway, they've uh, spots a dog, it's, or a four-legged little robot. It's, you know, maybe two and a half, three feet high and probably about the same uh, length and not that wide, like a foot and a half wide. Um, with yep. spot, they've mounted uh, really a number of cameras. And what Matt was alluding to is that on a given, uh, project what you can do with spot and they cost I think it's like 73 grand is what the cost of spot is somewhere in that ballpark between 70 and 80,000 um, is you would effectively set it up and it could go and do daily walks through your job site so take pictures video whatever you want through the job site basically your daily progress photos and for um, like the community center that you're talking about, it could go and walk the like main floor right every day. And then the areas that are a little harder to get to like a mechanical mezzanine or whatever, your project engineer or superintendent would still have to go and climb the ladder to go up there. Um, but spot could do basically the, the daily progress photos and um, scans of it. And then like, as you got your walking track installed, right, you <laughs> spot could go and do a, a daily walk around the track. Um, and give you all those kind of progress photos. So it uh, spots a augmentation to a basically a project engineer, site superintendent to go and do daily uh, progress photos or however often you want. You could do morning, evening. I mean, literally as much as you want because again, it doesn't take any of your time other than the <laughs> C spot run. Yeah, kick the thing out the door and tell it to go. <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> yep, yep. And what? Um, so outside of robotics, what's kind of the thing that you would like to see implemented, um, or some technology solution that would, would help you guys, uh, out in the field? Um, out in the field, you know, there's a lot of, of, of things that could come out there to help our, our field guys, especially, um, you know, like I mentioned, the, the iPads and, and having the plans, you know, at, at their fingertips is great. They're, they're still a little clunky, you know, um, like today, for example, I, I was meeting with a client and, and all I had was my iPad. So trying to, to snap measurements with my, you know, sausage fingers on my <laughs> iPad is, is just, it, it works in a pinch, but it's not great. So I, I would say, you know, refining kind of the, you know, we kind of exploded this tech market, I think in the last you know, five, five years or so, especially with the iPads, but kind of refining 
the usability of some of those items I think would be very helpful right now. And just just make them kind of easier for the average the average guy or girl to to handle and and to utilize to its fullest. Absolutely. And what about in the office? Is there anything that that you see coming out that um, would really help firms um, kind of in the office or the the back of house type of stuff? Um, certainly on the the pre construction side. I mean we're you know, we're very heavily pre-con focused and that's, that's how we can provide the value we do with, with design build. So, you know, anything that, that helps to tie all of the disciplines involved together. Um, you know, we talked a bit about BIM and, and, you know, there's some other design softwares I think out there that, that, that are trying to do this and, and trying to, you know, kind of loop everyone in the same page. Um, you know, I, I don't want that. I don't know what that product's called, but whatever it is, it, it needs to get us all in the same room be it you know physically or virtually and and get everyone's disciplines and, and ideas into one program that we can all utilize you know so you know i kind of have this vision of this global this global system that that i start on the pre-con side and my superintendent's using it my plumbers are using it my mechanical guys use it the carpenters have their version and, and I, I don't know that that ever happens from a cost perspective, but it, it would certainly be a, a cool thing to see. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, <clears throat> we'll go back a little bit and um, talking about pre-con um, and bringing really value to, to your clients. How, how has pre-con done that for you? And what's kind of your, your big value proposition um, there at Schaefer for, for pre-con and, and kind of your services? So pre-construction, um, you know, a lot of people look at it and they just, they call it estimating and, and it's really, it's so much more than that. Uh, but the systems that we have in place and that we utilize, I mean, we, we have the ability now through our in-house databases, through our connections, our consultants, you know, we can provide very solid budget numbers off of very, very limited information for, for almost any project. Obviously there, there's some specialty stuff that we get involved in that is a little different, but you know, for your average project, um, you know, in-house we can with, with a floor plan an elevation and a site plan, you know, we can get a number together that, you know, I would stand behind this within 5% of, of reality and, and we'll go to contract on that sometimes. And, and what that does, um, you know, it, it creates a feeling of trust, obviously, because we're, we, we take a humongous risk in doing that, but we take it, you know, in a very calculated way, because we're, we're confident in, in our abilities to, to manage that process and, and that our numbers are, are good. Um, it, it cuts down on the design cost immensely, because if, if we can get to the bottom line number, you know, like I said, in three drawings, you know, we can go to construction with maybe 30 drawings instead of, you know, some of the packets we get are, you know, hundreds of pages, you know, plus, you know, you mentioned the 3000 page specs. We, um, <laughs> we are systematically trying to remove specs from the construction world or, or at least, you know, written book specs. There's, there's information in, contained in there that, that everybody needs, I think, but, you know, we're seeing more and more of the benefit of just including that information in the drawings themselves in, in short form and, um, 
it, it cuts down on, on clutter. It cuts down on some of the, the headache involved in it, but you know, the, just the whole, the whole pre-construction effort and, and leading the design, you know, we, the worst thing in my mind that can ever happen to a client is to design something and then not be able to build it. And our commitment at, at Schaefer uh, and, and my commitment, you know, really personally is that I, I don't want to see that happen. And, and I think with the right tools in place and, and by giving us that level of trust, we can guarantee that at the end of the day, you as, as the client are going to get what you need, uh, get what you want, and, and you're going to be able to afford it at the same time, which is you get those three key components and, and great things happen. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing more disheartening than a VE process at the end of a, you know, bid. Oh, they're terrible. VE and yeah, nobody's, nobody's happy. Yeah, they're terrible because let's face it, at the end of the day, VE is just how much scope can we pull out? There's no value engineering anymore. It's, it's what can we, you know, hack and slice out of this project to make the number drop below that magic line. And, you know, there's, there's creative ideas, you know, and not to suggest that there's not ways to, to do that better, but for the most part, that's, that's what it is. It's de-scoping the project. Yeah. And it, you have to sometimes, right? But but if we can avoid that from the get-go, I think everybody's a lot happier. Yeah, and I think if we called it de-scoping, it would uh, just add more clarity versus uh, trying to shiny up a pig, basically. And uh, Exactly. <laughs> value engineering. A uh, couple last questions um, for you, Matt, is where do you see the future of building? Uh, where do you see construction going? Obviously we've talked a lot about tech and, um, you know, let's just assume that we get back to, to normal. Um, where do you see kind of building going and construction? And um, obviously you'll know more about your market there in, in Michigan than um, around the country, but where do you kind of see the project types heading and um, what's your kind of take on the future of building? Well, I think to be quite honest, the future of building right now is kind of grim. Um, and I say that with, with all candor, but uh, if we as an industry cannot figure out very quickly how to renew interest in the trades, in construction um, across the, the young folks in America, uh, we're going to lose out big time because, and, and we're starting to see it in our industry now, you know, we're not getting a good influx of, of young, you know, men and women coming into the trades. It's, and what it's doing is, you know, you've got a foreman or, or a supervisor who's, you know, been in this game for 30, 40 plus years. They have a wealth of knowledge, but that knowledge leaves once they finally decide to retire. And, you know, we we're having a, a, big struggle, I, I think industry-wide, but certainly in our market here, uh, of getting getting kids, if you will, interested in the trades again. So I think, you know, that, that's kind of a personal mission project of my own, a, a little side project I'm, I'm toiling with trying to, to launch, but you know, we got to get, we got to make the trades cool again, for, for lack of better term. We got to make people realize that, you know, there are other options other than you know, jumping into college right after, after high school. And, um, 
you know, it, it's college isn't for everybody. Uh, I, there's a, there's a, a world of possibility uh, working in construction that, that I think we're, we're missing, we're missing the boat somewhere. And I don't know if it starts in school or if it starts somewhere else, but we're, we're missing the boat on, on getting people interested and, and, you know, excited to go out and, you know, and work with your hands again. And, you know, especially with the whole COVID mess, you know, when we, we kind of split everybody up and, and stuck ourselves in our basements or our, you know, our, our breakfast nooks or whatever with laptops, I think we all realize that that human connection uh, is pretty important and, you know, building construction in, in general can, can certainly provide that, you know, there's a level of camaraderie on our job sites that is, is second to none. You know, it's really a, it's a cool thing to see when you've got, you know, the, the 50 some year old, you know, blue collar badass who's been doing this his, his whole life kind of showing the new guy, the 18 year old kid, 19 year old kid, the ropes. And when you see that, that camaraderie form, and when you see that connection kind of form in, in the younger, uh, younger person's mind, it, it's, it's neat, you know, and, and you kind of see the future of the industry forming, but, but again, um, there's not enough of that happening. Because somewhere along the lines, we, as a society decided that construction wasn't cool, that, that manual labor jobs, you know, were kind of second rate, you know, or, or, or less, um, somehow we, we as a industry need to figure this problem out because if we don't, there's, there's going to be nobody left and it's going to drive pricing through the roof. It's going to, it's going to kill schedules and <clears throat> excuse me. I think it eventually kills the industry as a whole. Man, I agree on <laughs> so many fronts. Um, I mean, obviously I went to engineering school and, and got licensed and, um, that whole thing, but I, I find that there's a lot of, uh, guys and girls that are like, I'm not the most mechanically inclined guy. Like I'll straight up admit that, like when it comes to fixing, <laughs> you know, most things like, you know, I can, I can get by, but my craftsmanship is uh, second rate at best. And there's a lot of, uh, guys and girls that I know that, man, their mechanical inclination and skills are just incredible. And for those people to, you know, go to college is almost a waste of their talents. Um, and I think getting those people into the trades, getting them into a place where, I mean, you're getting paid immediately, you're making money, you're, you know, not carrying any debt really. Um, and is a great career path for a lot of those people. Um, they could stay and work with their hands for their entire lives or, you know, transition into different areas within the business, right? Going from, you know, somebody that's uh, like a, you know, young green apprentice to a journeyman to a superintendent to project manager. And I mean, there's a, a good known career path within construction that I think a lot of people very much overlook and they overlook the, the pay uh, within the industry, you know, and that you're getting paid the entire time that you're, you're there, you know, there's no, uh, no point in which you're, you're not getting paid. Um, so I think that that's a big piece of, of construction. Sure. There's pieces that are cyclical. Um, but you know, we've been going through that for a long time and, you know, there's ways to, to kind of handle that, um, for a lot of people. So I think you are absolutely correct. We do need more, 
people within our trades. There's a lot of people that whose skills and talents and inclination, um, you know, can go to the trades with, you know, a little bit of effort and direction. They would do fantastic within, um, you know, all, any of the trades. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, you hit the nail on the head, um, no pun intended, but, you know, you don't have to necessarily be mechanically inclined to succeed in this industry, right? You could, I think it's a good place to start for a lot of people is, is literally out in the trenches, you know, getting their hands dirty and, and bruising their knuckles. But I mean, I, you could do, you could go my path. You know, I started in the, in the field and I, I did it all. And I, I, you know, got sore and I worked with my hands and I created great things and eventually found my way into to the office side of it. And um, I'd be lying if I told you there, there aren't days when I, I go to one of my job sites and I think, man, it'd be nice to just throw the, throw the bags on again, or, you know, grab the hard hat and leave this stupid laptop alone for a little while. But, um, you know, there's just, there's all kinds of options out there because we need guys and, and girls on, on both sides. We need the office. We need the pre-con. We need the salesman um, as much as we need the field. And, you know, construction can't, can't go anywhere. You know, it's an industry that can't go away. It, you know, I don't care how many, cool robots we post about on, on our LinkedIn page, you know, at Schaefer and, and, you know, now there's, you know, trucks that can lay masonry and, and that stuff is great. You know, the tech we talked about is great, but, but the industry itself, it, you know, we're going to constantly evolve as a society. We have to, that's kind of the, the law of the land. So, you know, construction's here to stay. It's just a matter of, can we keep it a, a good place to be before it, you know, before it gets out of control here and before we, we lose that, you know, that talent that we're, that we are lacking right now. Yeah, completely. I mean, it goes on both sides of the fence, you know, design, construction, estimating, um, sales. I mean, you, you kind of named all of them there. Everybody is kind of, <laughs> they don't like construction or maybe it's not brought up as a viable career path. Um, even in engineering, like designing buildings isn't, you know, there's no real courses on it. Um, there's, you know, architects, obviously, but for the engineering disciplines, um, you know, building instructions kind of a forgotten thing. And, you know, it's a, definitely a viable career path. So, I mean, I think across the board, um, construction is kind of thought as a second tier thing when, in fact, you know, it, it drives the world that we live in today. And um, without construction from roads to bridges to buildings, you know, we'd be living in huts. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And kind of the final thing, and um, first, uh, where can they find you, Matt? What's the best place to, to reach out and, uh, and find you? So our, our website is, is schaferconstruction.net. It's S-C-H-A-F-E-R. Um, we have a Schaefer Construction LinkedIn page and, and Facebook. Uh, you can find me at, at Matt, Matt Vetter on LinkedIn and, and Facebook. Um, admittedly, I'm, I'm way behind the times and I'm still trying to figure out this whole Instagram thing. So we're kind of limping our way right there, but, but those would be the, the easiest methods to get a hold of us right now. Awesome. Yeah. And guys, you should definitely reach out, find Matt, see what they're up to. Uh, they've got some cool stuff that's going on. And my last question, Matt, is Having been in construction for, for 20 years, what's something that maybe you wish you had known 
um, as you're starting out. So for, for that young guy or girl out there that's thinking about construction that made it all the way to the end of this podcast, um, what is something that you would you know, tell yourself or them uh, getting into the construction industry? Uh, never stop learning. You know, find those guys, those, those crusty old guys that have been doing this forever and, and stick to them like glue. Cause those are the guys that, that be it tradesmen, be it the crusty old guy in the office, you know, setting up estimates or, or the crusty old architect, you know, those, those are the guys that have seen more than, more than you have, you know, those are the guys to, to reach out to, to, to really kind of get into that, that mentor mentee relationship if you can, because there's a, there's a ton of knowledge out there in this industry. Um, there's not a lot of it that you can learn reading a book. So I would just say, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, find those guys, those, those women and, and really kind of glom onto them and, and soak up as much as you can. And you, you'll, you'll go great places doing just that. Completely agree. Yeah, there's very few books on construction. It's really all just passed down and, uh, you know, getting beaten or uh, screwing up something so badly that it sticks with you. We've all all had that uh, through our careers or been told uh, some horror stories that, that stick with us. So that's, it's more uh, campfire stories than anything in books when it comes to lessons learned in construction. So I completely agree with what Matt said is fine. Find somebody that's got some age and wear and tear on them and been beaten down a couple times and they'll uh, they'll help to not lead you astray. With I, that, I like that. I like the campfire story. That, that's a good one. I'm going to use that. <laughs> With that, Matt, any, any final closing thoughts? Uh, you know, Dylan, I, I had a lot of fun, man. I, I appreciate you inviting me on and, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully, somebody can glean something from this because it, it was fun to talk about. And, you know, it, it's an industry I love, you know, I, I'm doing it not by, not because I'm forced to, you know, I, I wouldn't choose any other way. So I, I appreciate the time, man. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. And guys, we've covered a ton of ground today. We, from robotics to uh, contracts to what design build should actually look like and that collaboration is not your enemy. It's a great way to work together and to make projects go seamlessly and uh, flow much better. So if you got something out of this podcast, if you liked it, share it. If you know somebody that is wanting to get into construction or maybe thinking about it, share this podcast. Know that construction is a great place for you to build and grow a career and really a, a way of life. So if you'd like camaraderie, if you like building things, if you like seeing things come up and out of the ground, construction is a great industry for you and share this with somebody that uh, you think would benefit from it. So until next time, guys, that's this episode of the Construction Corner Podcast.